0: Welcome to the Scholar Soup podcast, brought to you by the University of Queensland Library. In this podcast series, we are going to meet with amazing women who found their success in academic and professional roles at the University of Queensland. They are resilient, smart, proactive, and more importantly, they are now working together to implement systemic changes that could make your career progression that little bit easier. If success breeds success, then listen to their stories and learn from the best. In this episode, I spoke with Professor Janine Baxter, who is the Director of the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence. Her research interests are in social disadvantage, gender inequality, family dynamics, life course, and longitudinal studies. Janine is supervising the research of numerous high-degree students and research fellows. She has many publications in her list that sound so interesting. Subjects such as marriage, unpaid domestic work, relationships dissolution, very successful in her own career, Janine tells me careers are never linear, there are ups and downs. So, what keeps her on the path towards her goals? Professor Janine Baxter, good morning and welcome. Thank you. Uh, Janine, you are the director of the ASS Centre of Excellence for Children and Families over the Life course. Can you tell us a bit more about the centre and perhaps highlight uh, the top three problems the centre is trying to resolve for the benefit of the society?
1: Yes, the centre is a multidisciplinary research centre funded by the ARC and a number of partner organisations. We're administered out of the University of Queensland, Institute for Social Science Research, where I'm based, uh, and we're partnered with University of Melbourne, Sydney and Western Australia and a number of government and NGO partners. So we're a big national centre and we're primarily focused on trying to understand how social disadvantage, broadly defined, not just in terms of poverty and economic disadvantage, but also health, uh, social isolation, other forms of disadvantage. We're interested in how social disadvantage develops and accrues over the life course So what are the critical milestones where disadvantage might worsen or, conversely, where you might intervene and shift people out of disadvantage? And um, how does it accrue from parents to children? So what is it about family background and where you're born and and who your parents are that means that you're much more likely to take a particular pathway? So it's quite a broad uh, centre where... In Australia, we're a very lucky country. We're a wealthy country. We're developed. We have a stable political system, um, economic system. And yet the gap between the rich and the poor is getting wider, even in Australia. And so that's really puzzling. You know, why are resources, economic resources and well-being not being shared equally? Um, so that's one of the questions that we're focused on. A second question is looking at the group of people who are deeply and persistently disadvantaged, so people who are disadvantaged for long periods of time, many years, and don't have the opportunity to move out of disadvantage, so what can we do to help those people? And then, yeah, we're trying to develop interventions um, both for individuals but also for communities and looking at policies that might influence Institutions like the labour market, um, education systems, what can we do to uh, develop new um, ways of managing um, that might help shift people and communities out of social disadvantage? So it's a, it's a big question. Um, we're multidisciplinary. So I'm a sociologist, but I'm working with economists, psychologists, public health um, statisticians. Um, so we're, we're coming together and we all are very um, keen to look at these um, questions through a life course angle, which means studying at the very early part of the life and looking at how disadvantage accrues as people move through um, their life course.
0: That's very, very interesting. Sounds really
1: exciting.
0: Um, Janine, are you also looking at gender? Um, how is Australia going with that?
1: Yes, that's a very, um, I'm very interested in that, and that's a, an area that I've worked on for many years. In fact, I did my PhD looking at um, unpaid work in the household and how men and women divided housework and care work, and then the implications of that for women's access to education and employment. Um, So it comes into the centre a little bit. Certainly some of the work that I'm doing and others is looking at family dynamics and patterns around gender. Um, But it's an area that I'd like to do more research um, on. And Australia's not doing very well. Surprisingly, um, the latest global economic um, forum report shows that Australia is slipping well behind. So we were um, ranked um, 15th in the world in 2006 and we've now dropped to 44th in the world in 2020. So that's a depressing um, statistic um, and I think it needs to be unpacked a bit further. That's That's a global overall statistic that brings together education, numbers of women in parliament, um, access to employment, earnings and so on. So there'll be variations depending on what measure you look at. But overall, Australia is doing poorly. And I think we do need to be looking at why is that happening? Is it something about Australia? Are other countries pulling ahead of us? You know, what's going on there? Oh, wow.
0: I, never, I didn't expect that answer, frankly speaking. Um, in some of your words, Janine, uh, or your works, uh, you actually talk about gender agenda. What is it and what is the effect of the so-called stalled revolution? So I think it's coming from your work as well.
1: Yes. So, um, so the way we've tackled gender inequality in Australia, and this may um, speak to to that fall in our in our ranking, is that we have removed some of the the legal barriers. We've encouraged women into education and employment. And in fact, um, more women enter higher education and complete higher education than men overall, um, although they go into very different areas. Certainly more women are entering paid employment. So we've, we've removed some of those legal barriers, but we haven't really focused on other aspects of people's lives, men and women. So women are encouraged to, to go into higher education. They're encouraged into em- employment. But when it comes to work in the household and care work, the kinds of um, higher education that women go into, the kinds of degrees they do, the kinds of work that women are channelled into, there are very clear gender um, pathways um, that women pursue compared to men. And so we've kind of... One way to think about it is that we've encouraged women to follow a male life course path, but we haven't really made it possible for them to do that because women are still expected to be the primary carers for young children. Um, they have a very interrupted employment um, history. When they have children, they they tend to, to move out of employment to take on the main caring role. They often come back part-time. And so they never really have the opportunity to follow that pathway in the same way that men do. And so it's not surprising that women at the end of their careers often end up with much less superannuation. They're the fastest growing group of homeless people in Australia. So there's lots of indicators that, yes, women are being encouraged and supported, and that's very good, but there's big parts of society that we haven't tackled. And I think we need to take that more systemic approach and look at not just opening up certain pathways and and letting women... You know, try to succeed, but to really kind of challenge some of the institutions, particularly around families and educational and labour markets. So that possibly is the
0: light at the end of the tunnel, isn't it? <laughs>
1: it's it's a big task, um, and so a lot of um, a lot of commentators refer to what's going on as a stalled revolution. And so we have made a lot of progress, and I. I wouldn't want to downplay that. It's very, very important to, to remove those legal barriers. But it only takes us so far. And we need to, to look at what else needs to happen, particularly around care work and that division of labour within households. And we need to open that up, not just so that women um, can um, move away from you know being responsible for all of that work, but to enable men to, to share in that work. Because I'm sure a lot of men would like to. But we have a culture where it's very, very difficult for men to to work part-time or to to take time out um, to care for young children at home. So we need to to challenge some of those barriers. That's very
0: interesting. So um, do you see any positive changes uh, for women in the
1: academic world? Well, absolutely. I mean, certainly compared to when I was an undergraduate, there's a lot more women coming to university. And when you look at the statistics across the higher education sector, 55, 56% of undergraduates and postgraduates are women. Um, So there's certainly a lot more opportunity, but they tend to be concentrated in particular areas. So we haven't opened up, for example, IT is still very male-dominated. Um, engineering is still a very male dominated um, degree um, architecture so women have moved into um, education health sciences humanities social science so there's been a lot of progress but there are still still challenges out there and so we need to be looking at you know what we can do to open up some of those areas and encourage women into those areas so that they have full access to all of the opportunities that higher education can bring. Janine, your academic record is really
0: impressive. You have published over 300 works and you are an elected fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia and a former member of its executive committee. You're currently serving on several government advisory committees and research advisory boards and this is just a few things to mention. Are you coming from an academic family?
1: Can you tell us a little bit about your journey? No, I'm, I'm the first in my family to go to university. I was brought up on a farm in not really remote, but what's called outer regional Australia. My first um, school was a, a little, I think, one teacher, two-room school in um, New South Wales from kindergarten through to Grade six, there was I think about twelve students, so probably about three in my class, and then I moved to a bigger school in a, a bigger town of about a thousand people. The school had about a hundred students from kindergarten right through to, to year twelve. So no, I'm I'm not coming from an academic background, um, and when I compare the opportunities that I had through my schooling compared to what my own children have had here in Brisbane. They're just miles apart. But I was certainly encouraged by my parents to pursue my dreams and certainly encouraged to to move out of um, that rural area if I wanted to um, go on to um, university, which I did. But I didn't have very many role models. And certainly when I went to university, which was the ANU in Canberra for my undergraduate um, degree, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do or where I was going. I just knew that this seemed like a good idea and would help me move out of that rural area and, and see what was out there in the big wide world. And I, I haven't looked back.
0: Yeah, so nobody really influenced that decision. It was your own decision. You just thought it was a good idea and you you, you went full on.
1: Well, I, I did love school um, and I loved studying. Um, I remember in about, I think it was grade nine, we had some career counsellors come from outside of the the town. They came from one of the, the bigger regional towns and they came and talked to us about, you know, job opportunities and career opportunities. And I remember, and I'll never forget this, my conversation was about opportunities for women to move into retail and perhaps nursing. And one of my older sisters was a nurse. And I just remember that conversation thinking, wow, I, I would hate that. That's absolutely not what I want to do. <laughs> they didn't offer you a, a professorship, no? <laughs> <But what? laughs> and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew that wasn't it. And, um, and as I said, certainly my parents encouraged me to get out and see what was out there. And so off I went to university and um, didn't have a clue what I was going to do, but, you know, found my way and, and really, it really opened my eyes to, to other possibilities that I had no idea about.
0: Um, would you agree, though, that me- mentorship is particularly important for career progression? And uh, how can someone find a mentor without being too um, imposing or sticky? Yet?
1: It is very important. I, and that's one of the things that we do offer in the Life Course Centre is a formal mentoring um, program where we match across disciplines, young researchers with more senior researchers for you know informal conversations about career pathways and just um, looking out for opportunities and, and guiding people. So that's very important. I, I've had some very good mentors. Interestingly, some of the best mentoring advice I've had hasn't been from formal mentors but they've just been from women um, and men who I've come into in passing, who have made suggestions that I hadn't thought about and I've realised, oh, that's, that's a good thing to think about. I will think about that, yes. So often mentoring comes in surprising ways and not necessarily from formal programs. So I think reaching out to um, senior people or people that you admire and look up to for those conversations and yeah, just getting advice about you know what could be a next step for me, or you know what did you do in this situation? Those things can be very helpful. So yes, I think it's incredibly important. And I and I think mentoring at all stages of your career, not just when you're a junior researcher, but when you get to that mid-career point where you've already completed a PhD, you may have may have completed um, other milestones, but where do you really want to go next? Um, so there are a number of places along the career journey that I think it's very important to reach out, both to formal and informal ways to get support and advice from, from people and people who are outside your discipline, outside your immediate area, who will look at you in a fresh way and, and open up ideas that you may not have thought about.
0: Do you have any advice on how to retain competitive advantage in the male-dominated dominated environment?
1: Well, certainly you've got to love what you're doing, um, and I think I really found my passion in sociology way back in my first year at ANU when I had no idea what sociology was or social sciences, and I just opened my eyes to understanding things that I'd never thought about before so and I haven't lost that passion, you know thirty five years later, or whatever it is, um, possibly longer. So, you've got to love what you do. You've got to be prepared to work hard. But I think also um, being prepared to step outside your comfort zone and do something on a project or working with people that you may not necessarily have thought about working with before, if you can, moving around. So, some of the biggest opportunities have come to me when I have moved from one place to another, either within the university or across universities. And I remember um, as a postdoc taking up an opportunity to go and work in the United States at a big university um, in Wisconsin. And again, I wasn't quite sure what this would bring. Was it a good idea um, you know, taking time out, I had had a job offer here in Australia, and it seemed pretty risky to take this short term position, but I did, and it was the best thing that I did. You know, it was a really good choice. And again, it opened up that international uh, network to me, which I've drawn on throughout my career. And the mentors that I had in Wisconsin became some of my closest friends and have mentored me all the way through in a a very informal way. But again, it was a a really good choice. So, yeah, it was a step outside your comfort zone, work hard, and if you don't enjoy what you're doing, then think about what are the other opportunities that you might pursue. You
0: know, Janine, you you never said, think outside the box because you probably don't think there is a box. (laughs) 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 Um, You know, using your own words, careers are never linear are ups and downs. What is your anchor in life that keeps you with your goals and keeps
1: you on the path towards your goals? Do you have any advice? Well, my anchor in life is is my family. Um, so I have two daughters and a husband, and um, you know they're the most important things in my life. So there's been a lot of achievements, and I'm you know getting my PhD, that trip to Wisconsin, certainly winning the Centre of Excellence, um, and then getting a second round of funding. They're fantastic achievements and very, very proud of all those achievements. But my anchor in life is the next generation, my children, and the next generation of researchers. So one of the things that the Centre is trying to do is to open up opportunities for social science researchers into the future and to think about how we can build Social science for the next generation of researchers so they're the things that I'm most proud of and I think at the end of my career when I look back it it you know the PhD all of those achievements are very important getting into the academy as you mentioned being on committees terrific uh, you know I really am proud that I was able to do that but my most proudest achievements are my two daughters and the students and postdocs who are going to be um, continuing on and hopefully continuing to do the work um, that we've laid the foundations for.
0: Well, looking at your career retrospectively, what were the most important turning points and would you have done anything differently?
1: You know, at the time there were some turning points that were difficult. Um, so I, I, after the postdoc in Wisconsin, I had a position at the ANU in Canberra in the Research School of Social Sciences which was a, a research fellowship. And at the end of that, the contract was not extended, which I'd hoped it would be and I'd done very well there. And And I moved to a new position at University of Tasmania, which, you know, seemed like a, a bit of a, you know, a long way away. And I wasn't quite sure, you know, it was a remote part of Australia, a regional university, not nearly as many resources as as ANU, and I, I wasn't sure if it was the best move. But in again, in hindsight, it was a, a terrific move because again, I was moved into teaching, which I hadn't had the opportunity to do before. I had fantastic colleagues. I had a lot of opportunities there, which I wouldn't have had if I'd stayed at ANU. Different kinds of opportunities. Um, was able to, to supervise um, an Indigenous student who's now um, had a terrific career and. So yeah, that was a real turning point and I think it was really good for me to to go to a, a university that was less well resourced in a regional, um, I was at a regional campus um, of a regional university in a far flung state and it turned out to be a really good experience. Um, so again, it's those opportunities which at the time you're thinking, oh, I'm not sure if this is the best career move, but in hindsight it was.
0: You're a really great role model, Janine, and um, what can be your advice to those young women who are possibly hesitating whether or not to pick academia for their career path?
1: It is tricky. I think particularly now with the COVID-19 situation and some of the downturn in international students, universities are Financially more challenged than they were even even a couple of years ago. So my advice would be to to keep your options open. Don't narrow um, your pathways if you don't have to. But if you love the work um, and you're prepared to work hard, then I think there are still opportunities there. Um, And you know I would say you know go for it if if that's if that's your passion. And I think that's the most important thing, really. You've got to love what you're doing, but keep it balanced. Look after yourself. Don't neglect your health and your well-being. Don't neglect time with friends and family because those things are also very important and I think make you a better academic and a better researcher. So so keep that perspective, but don't give up on your dreams. And if you love it, there are always pathways and And take those unexpected opportunities, which may not look like an opportunity at the time, but in hindsight may open up new pathways that you didn't even know about. And so there's many ways. There are many pathways. And don't just assume that it's got to be linear from one stage to the next. But, you know, it may be up and down, but some of those downs can lead to, you know, new opportunities that you you don't know about yet.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time with us today, this morning, and thank you for sharing your experiences and your wisdom.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: That's it for this episode of Women Finding Success. The podcast series was initiated by the Sage Athena Swan team at the University of Queensland. Thanks to Workplace Diversity and Inclusion team and Gender Steering Committee for their support and coordination. The series is produced by Dr. Elena Danilova with technical production by John Anderson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe or write a review on the platform you get your podcast from. Thank you for listening.